Section 1 of Edward III. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. Introduction. Edward III was King of England for a little more than fifty years, having been proclaimed January 24th, 1327, and dying June 21st, 1377. The backbone of the story of his reign and times is the Great Continental War. This war, though taxing to the utmost the resources of England and France, and illustrated by many brilliant actions of which our countrymen are still justly proud, was ultimately indecisive and unfruitful in direct results. In its external aspects, it was less like an international struggle in which great issues were involved and important principles at stake than one of those splendid tournaments in which this, the golden age of chivalry, took delight. Preparations are made on a magnificent scale. The contending parties defile under the eyes of innumerable eager spectators into the lists, with the blazonry of shield and surcoat, the waving of plume and pennon, the blare of trumpet and clarion. Defiances are interchanged, and after many a ceremonious delay and passing of heralds to and fro, the champions encounter furiously in the shock of battle. But when one of the combatants has unhorsed his adversary and borne him to the ground, the victor, instead of slaughtering or permanently disabling his prostrate foe, suffers him to rise and bathe his bruises, to call for a fresh horse and lance, and renew the contest. At nightfall, to complete the parallel, the interest slackens, the combatants depart, the spectators disperse, and no more substantial results remain from the splendid and costly pageant than broken heads and broken lances and reputations lost and won. Nevertheless, Though of secondary importance in the history of the time, the war will unavoidably occupy the greatest amount of space in the following pages, and its leading events, if they do not suggest, at least fall in with the attempt to distribute the fifty years of the reign into five clearly defined periods of ten years each. The first decade is marked at its commencement by the formal conclusion of a peace between England and France, and it terminates with the opening of the quarrel between the two nations and the completion of the preparations on both sides for war. The second period of ten years opens with the first invasion of France and winds up with the fourth and greatest invasion which resulted in the victory of Crecy and the surrender of Calais. The beginning of the third decade finds a forced cessation of hostilities throughout Europe in consequence of the ravages of the Black Death, and its conclusion is marked by the Battle of Poitiers and the capture of the French king. The fourth period commences with an indirect consequence of the war, the outbreak of the Jacquerie in France, and takes us down to the Battle of Navarrete and the reinstatement of the King of Spain by the Black Prince. The last ten years of the reign are marked by a series of reverses and disasters commencing with the illness of the Black Prince, his war tax and consequent unpopularity in his French duchy, 
and ending with the loss of almost all the territories which the English had previously possessed or won during the war in France. The external history of the whole epoch, so far as its most conspicuous actors are concerned, thus returns as it were upon itself, and this is equally true of its several portions. At the end of every ten years or so a great and apparently decisive battle is fought, but the general aspect of affairs is scarcely altered by the event. The same negotiations and counter-negotiations, the same diplomatic thrusts and parries, the same menaces and courtesies are renewed, and after all, we hardly seem to advance a step any more than in a dream towards a practical result. A good deal of this is doubtless traceable to the character of the English king himself. His reign was for a long time great and prosperous, in spite of extravagant expenditure, short-sighted legislation, and vacillating foreign policy, because by his personal prowess, liberality, and splendor, his ready tact, incessant activity, and marvelous good fortune, he carried his people with him, enlisted their sympathy, and commanded their admiration. But unlike his grandfather, the great Edward I, he lived and labored for glory and ambition, not for practical or permanent objects. His work and influence were personal and evanescent. No sooner does his vigor begin to decline, and his busy and brilliant individuality to fade away out of the foreground, than disasters of various forms come thronging in, and gradually take possession of the scene. France, though passing through a terrible agony and apparently the greatest sufferer by the long struggle, was in reality the chief gainer in the end, for her kings were guided throughout by a consistent hereditary policy which made them keep the single object in view of extinguishing the half or more than half independent fiefs of the crown, and thus consolidating a vast nominal dominion into a compact and united sovereignty. The emperor, too, had a policy, quite independent of the dynastic struggle in which he was so long engaged, a policy which brought him into sympathy with the aspirations of the whole German race after social and religious freedom, the development, namely, of the sources of wealth in trade, enterprise, and political liberty, and the emancipation of himself and his subjects from the tyranny of the Vatican. He recognized kindred sentiments in the English people, and at first entered warmly into the English alliance. He withdrew from it in despair only when it became evident that local jealousies would make it impossible to carry out his project of so combining the power of England and of the empire as to compel the submission of the Pope and the recognition by France of the claims of Edward III. Charles IV, who succeeded Louis in 1347 and was crowned emperor in 1354, took no part in European politics. He was in fact a very good ruler of his own kingdom of Bohemia, but he left the interests of the empire to take care of themselves. The anarchic condition of the far east of Europe began toward the close of this epoch to assume shape and consistency by the growing importance of Moscow and its recognition as a center of national life 
and national aspirations for Tartar-ridden Russia, as well as by the union of the kingdoms of Poland and Hungary under the scepter of Louis the Great. All along that monarch's southeastern frontier the crescent gleamed, for northern Greece and Servia and Wallachia were subdued and occupied by the Janissaries of Sultan Amurath I, who had already established the long-enduring dominions of the Turk on the ruins of the Roman Empire of the East. On the northern and southern shores of Europe, this was the day of wealthy and powerful trading republics. The rising communities on the Baltic as well as on the Tuscan and Adriatic seaboards enriched themselves by the struggles, to the parties themselves worse than unproductive, of the greater powers and became the bankers, carriers, purveyors, and clothiers of the civilized world. But the main historical interest and importance of the epoch are to be sought below the surface. In the first beginnings of the great religious revolution, which, though it broke up the nominal unity of Christendom, conferred on whole nations the inestimable boon of free access to God and of a faith in harmony with reason, they are to be sought in the parallel advance of popular institutions, commercial enterprise, and original literature. In the decay of feudalism and chivalry, with the simultaneous upgrowth of a great middle class and a multitude of new ideas and new social and political relations, which in their progress and expansion have largely contributed to the formation and development of the Europe of today. All these points will be touched upon more or less in detail in the following pages, though England will naturally occupy the foreground and her history determine the greater or less amount of prominence to be given to contemporary continental events. End of section one.